want to say welcome to all of you here that are in this room and those that are joining us by television or on the internet. We're so glad that you would join us for worship and a great song to introduce the message because we're going to be talking about the founding of the church. How does a church stand? How does it last after all these years? What we're talking about is choosing a team. Now my boys love football. In fact, they're down there taking great notes, I'm sure, but I'm sure you would also read about teams and players if you do look at their bulletins later, because that's what they think about and talk about all the time. Uh, They had a great time this year playing fantasy football, because they don't just have to pick a team, they can pick players, and that's what they care about. So for fun in our house, they like to talk about uh, every quarterback, running back, and wide receiver in the entire NFL, and they win every time, because I don't keep up with it quite like they do. That's just their favorite thing to do. But we all know what it's like, the process of picking a team, because we've all been there. We've been on the playground when there's a kickball game or a basketball game starting up, two captains, and they start selecting the team. You know, who's the fastest, the tallest? Who might throw the ball to me? How can we win this game? And inevitably, somebody feels left out at the end. And nobody likes to feel left out, especially when you're choosing teams. In fact, I believe there's a hunger within each of us to want to belong, to be able to fit in. It's this desire for community because I think we need community, a place where we fit, a place where we belong. So uh, we talked last week um, about life together and the idea of unity within community. And so we're going to kind of continue that conversation today. And I think it's an appropriate time to ask the question, am I in community? We're going to speak in spiritual terms, and since I believe the tool that God uses most clearly in our lives to grow us up and to shape us as believers in Jesus Christ, since the tool he uses most is people, then we need to ask ourselves, what sort of people am I surrounding myself with? Do I have the people around me that can bring about my best self? Do I have the people who will call me out when I'm walking down the wrong path? Do I have the people around me who will help me grow in my relationship with the Lord? Last week I mentioned this book, Life Together, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, We were talking about unity and community, but Bonhoeffer says this about Christian community. He says, Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. Essentially what he is proposing is that the Christian needs others for the sake of Jesus. We don't need others simply for the sake of our friendship. We don't need other Christians in our life just for companionship. Those things are great. But we need other Christians for the sake of our walk with the Lord. We need believers who will speak into our lives, that will proclaim the word to us. Because we know within ourselves we don't have the solution to life, so we need other people speaking the word to us. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the Christ in one's own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of another Christian. We have Jesus within us, but we need other people who speak the word to us. That's why Sunday school, a small group, some sort of place where there's accountability and fellowship to be able to help us in our spiritual walk. So with that in mind, I want us to look at the word of God and what essentially is the establishment of this church. It's Christ's calling of the 12 disciples. And the question we ask is, how did he pick his team? I mean, we know how we would do it. Five-star players, blue-chip recruits, the strong, the tall, the fast, 
all of those things. But what about Jesus? So we're going to look at uh, Mark's account, Mark chapter 3. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. I'm going to read to you verses 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now I know some of you are reading that and you're thinking, Thaddeus? Thaddeus was a disciple? I don't quite remember him. And, uh, but sometimes we keep up with about six of these, but we struggle at naming them all, unless we know a song or a tune to remind us of it. But I think the scripture demonstrates that Jesus appoints 12 disciples to be with him and to minister through preaching and opposing demonic forces. And what I hope that you will see today is that Jesus sees the importance of community. And he calls us to be on his team and to be key players in his plan to rescue the world. So, how did Jesus go about selecting this small group of 12 disciples? Well, the scriptures clearly indicate Jesus selected the 12 by his own will for specific purposes from ordinary backgrounds. And so we're going to look a little closer at this idea of community and Jesus' Jesus's original small group. So, first of all, Jesus appointed the 12, the scripture says, by his own will. Luke says that the night before Jesus went to appoint the twelve, he spent some time in prayer. In fact, let me read the verse to you. In Luke 6, verse 12, it says, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Jesus saw the importance of spending uh, time with the Lord, of communion with God before he makes a critical decision. There's a lot to be learned from that. And then right after that night of prayer, Mark 3.13 says, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. Now there's probably symbolism in the fact that Jesus and his followers go up on a mountain. There's probably something to be said about the spiritual heights or communing with God. But we also know practically they're trying to get away from the crowds. When Jesus is down at the Sea of Galilee, he's healing those with sickness or disease. And so crowds just start pushing in because they want to be healed too. And so Jesus retreats up the mountain to be with his followers. And more than likely, that was not just that 12 folks went up with him. It's that a crowd went up with him and that he called from among the crowd the 12 that we see mentioned in the scripture. It says that he chooses the ones that he wanted. And what we learn is that God's sovereign will prevailed here. He chose according to his, to his own desire, according to his sovereignty. And I think it's appropriate for us in this passage to ask the question, what does that mean? We hear that a lot, divine sovereignty or God's sovereign will. What does it mean? What it means is that God, that Jesus has absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. He is under no external restraint whatsoever. All the pulls that we feel to make certain decisions, Jesus 
as God feels none of that. He does, does according to his will. A.W. Pink says it this way. Divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact as well as in name. Many people, are, there are many gods that were set up in the world, but the one true God isn't just God in name. He's also God in uh, practicality. Uh, he is able to do what he wants to do. So Mark is clear that after Jesus called, they came. There was no hesitation, which is the only way to respond to the Lord appropriately. They just go. And what we learn in this passage of Scripture, and also what we learn from history, and from studying this book, and from our own life experience, is that God is in control, and God does as He wills. I've begun another read through the Bible journey this year. So it's January, I'm in Genesis, and this past week I was reading a passage that reminded me of God's sovereignty. This is when Abraham is visited by the Lord. And then the Lord says to him, I'll return next year, and when I do, Sarah, your wife, will have a baby. Well, she's, over, uh, she's listening, she overhears all this, and it says that she laughs. Because she's old, she assumes she's barren, and she says, oh, next year I'll have a son. And this is what the Lord says in Genesis 18, 14. He says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? What a verse. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? As a matter of fact, I want you to say that with me. Let's say that together, okay? Here we go. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And just to make sure you didn't miss it, one more time. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? I think sometimes we need to hear those words. I know some of you feel like you are standing in front of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is at your back. Is God able to turn the Red Sea into dry land? Some of you feel like you're in the den with lions. Is God able to close the mouths of the lions? God is more than able to deliver from the fiery furnace. He is more than able to cause the sun to stand still. He is more than able to turn your mourning into gladness. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? The answer is no, absolutely nothing. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He does as he himself wants. Every time, all the time. He does the same thing here as he's selecting the disciples. Now sometimes it's difficult to accept that God has a will. And while he cares about our needs and desires, he does as he wills. So let me say very clearly, God is not some divine genie he's, who's waiting to grant your next wish. He is confident in who he is. His identity is not tied up in you or his relationship with mankind. He is God. Our lives are to revolve around him, not the reverse. And so maybe a good application for you this morning is to take inventory of your life and ask the question, am I surrendering to his will or am I wrestling with God trying to pin him down to surrender to mine? So Jesus appointed the 12 by his own will. And then it says Jesus also appointed the 12 for specific purposes. Now appointed literally means to make. There's this idea of newness here. The account says he appointed 12. This number 12 has a lot of nationalistic undertones to it. Um, a Jewish audience would totally connect with what he's saying. 12, no more, no less. Just like the 12 tribes of Israel which at this point have just, uh, 10 of them are gone from the face of the earth at when Jesus is saying this. 
Part of the northern kingdom, they've just been swept away and part of God's judgment. And now Jesus is doing something new. And he's appointing 12. He's bringing about a new people. And the scripture says he appointed them. And then it goes on to say, so that they would be. And then he gives three key purposes here. Number one, so that they would be with him. The idea here is fellowship, but it's not just hanging out. It wasn't that Jesus was desperate for a friend or somebody to play a game with. Jesus was calling these people to follow him. That means to follow him wherever he leads. And we know that Jesus led them into toil. He led them into harassment. He led them into suffering. And so he was calling 12 who would follow him. But the idea is association and education. People would see him and connect them to Jesus. And they learned about life and godliness from Jesus. Second, says he appoints them that he could send them out to preach. So he has a mission for them to go, to go out. And he has a message. They're to be heralds. They are to preach. They are to preach the good news that the kingdom has come. That God is here. That Jesus is here and he's coming to make all things new. And then the third thing is, is they are to have authority to cast out demons. So we need to distinguish from the idea of Jesus giving these 12 magical powers from what practically happened, which is Jesus made them conduit for God's power so that God could work for, through them. Because they're on a mission and they have a message and they're bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the world, which means there will be opposition from the enemy, from demonic forces, and they are being given the power to be conduit for God to press back darkness as light comes in. That's what's happening. And we should quickly see that when God calls, he does so with a purpose in mind. It's the same with you and me. When God calls us, he calls us for a purpose. We said from verse 1 that God has a will. Well, God also has plans. And those plans include you. Have you thought in those terms before? That God has a purpose and a plan for your life? It's what he made you for. And when he calls you into his family, he has a purpose for you to serve. He didn't just save you for your own benefit. He saved you for a purpose, to play a role in his kingdom, to put to practice those spiritual gifts that he gives you. I know that he called you so that you would walk in the spirit, to be filled with the spirit, to bear the fruit of the spirit. He called you so that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. He called you so that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And he called you so that he could send you out into every corner of the world and to make disciples of all nations. God has a plan for your life. He has a purpose in saving you, even when it doesn't feel like it. Maybe you feel derailed or sidelined, and you think, well, you know, God has a plan for some, but not for me. Beloved, he does. But sometimes our expectations don't match up with what reality is. And sometimes life stinks. And sometimes we are on sidelines watching. But I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So God has a plan for your life, even when it doesn't feel like it. Jesus appointed the twelve by his own will and for specific purposes. And now we see that he appointed, uh, those he appointed came from ordinary backgrounds. I want us to take in the time we have left uh, just opportunity to look at the twelve disciples. We'll have to do it quickly. But I think it's important enough for you to know them. 
If you were surprised to find out Thaddeus is a disciple, there's a good chance that in glory someday you'll shake his hand and he'll say, I'm Thaddeus, and you'll be like, oh, nice to meet you, and then find out later he was a disciple. And so we're trying to erase that so that when you meet him, you'll be like, I know who you are. And so uh, good practice to study the disciples so we'll recognize them when we meet them. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts all give an account of the 12 disciples. And every one of the lists begins with Peter. He's listed first. One writer says that he was first in faith. Well, I believe if Peter was first in faith, we also have to admit that Peter was first in failure too. He was known as Simon. That was his name. He was a fisherman from Bethsaida of the Galilee. And Jesus met Simon and renamed him Peter, which you probably know means rock or maybe rocky. Might be a better nickname for this day and age. Simon was not named Rocky because he was steady or because he was some sort of reliable person in the Gospels. It's kind of like that real big guy that you know that everybody calls Tiny. He's like the absolute opposite of Tiny, so it's just funny. Well, in some ways, that's what Jesus is doing when he names Simon. All right, Rocky. Everybody's like, yeah, right. Because he was anything but rock-like in the Gospels. One commentator points out that Peter was constantly swaying from one position to the next. He turned from trust to doubt. He turned from open profession of Jesus as the Christ to rebuking the Christ. He turned from a a vehement declaration of loyalty to base denial. He turned from by no means you will never wash my feet to not my feet only but also my hands and my head. John MacArthur uh, entitles the chapter he writes about Peter in his book on the disciples, The Apostle with the Foot-Shaped Mouth. That's who Peter was. He always said things that got him in trouble. He always, if it came into his mind, it came out of his mouth. Maybe you know somebody like that. Is that the kind of player that you would choose to be the quarterback for your team? That's who Jesus chose. And by the grace and power of the Lord, this uh, this changeable Simon was transformed into Peter, the rock. Jesus willingly overlooked the reality of his life right now and saw in the distance who Peter could become. If you think you're the type of person who always messes up, there's a place for you in God's kingdom. Next, we have a set of brothers. The scripture says uh, here that he uh, called... James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. I love that Jesus gives nicknames out. So he chose James and John, who were uh, also from Bethsaida. And I have to tell you that uh, they were called sons of thunder probably because that's about how they were. These were guys who just, that's what their temperament was. They just kind of sometimes said some explosive things. These are the two guys that when the Samaritans were maybe a little bit less than hospitable, they said, Jesus, you want us to call down fire and take care of these guys? And Jesus like, no, let's not do that. And it's like, I don't know how you would do that, but let's not do that. That's who James and John were. These were guys who were sons of thunder. And uh, in fact, their mother's the one who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you go in your kingdom, I want one of my sons on your right and one on the left, you know? Kind of missed the whole idea of what Jesus was doing in this little family put together. John was known as the, uh, the disciple who Jesus loved, probably a teenager when he fo- uh, started following Jesus, but he also was a follower, or first a follower of John the Baptist. James was the first of the 12 who died a martyr's death. And John is more than likely the last living disciple on earth. 
They tried to martyr him, but he survived it. And so these were the sons of thunder. I'm not sure who would have chosen them for the team to change the world, but Jesus did. Even though they had impulse problems, well, if you have impulse problems today or you have anger issues, the message is that Jesus has room for you on the team. And you know what the rest of the message is to us who don't struggle with that and wonder why other people do? Jesus calls those people to come follow him. And when we sing this song about amazing grace, it covers that too. Then we hear Andrew. Now, Andrew is Peter's brother, and that's about how everybody remembers him. Can you imagine being that? Well, this is, this is uh, Peter's brother here. And it's like, I'm Andrew too, you know? Now, it's funny he's remembered as that because Andrew is actually the one who brought Peter to Jesus. He was an early evangelist. And I wonder if he struggled with that whole thing. But he was the guy who was probably really good in a one-on-one basis, while Peter was the best spokesman for the church. But he was a background kind of guy. But there was room for him on God's team. Philip is the other guy. He was from Bethsaida, like these other four. Probably were friends with them. And like Andrew, Philip was an early evangelist. Um, Andrew told his friend Nathaniel about Jesus. Now, Andrew, I mean, excuse me, Philip was a Christ follower, but like so many people, he also underestimated Jesus. The gospel accounts talk about the time that Jesus fed the 5,000. Well, one of those times, or one of the accounts says that Jesus turns to Philip and he says, we got to feed these guys. So can, can, you, can you get the bread or, you know, basically essentially is what he's asking. And Philip's like, we got 200 denarii. That's not going to pay for all of that. And you want to remind him, is anything difficult, too difficult for the Lord? Because Philip underestimated the Lord. Well, maybe you underestimate him too. Jesus has grace for that and wants you on his team. Bartholomew, most assume that Bartholomew is also this guy known as Nathaniel. Um, it's not real clear in the scriptures, but most commentators say absolutely that's who he was. He's the one who said to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth when he heard about Jesus? But when Jesus saw Nathaniel, he said, this is a guy with no guile in him. So if you're the type who raises eyebrows to stories of good news like Bartholomew, there's a place on Jesus' team for you. There's another guy, it says, and Matthew, he was known as Levi. Now this is the guy with a questionable past. He's the guy who, when he was called to follow Jesus, he was a tax collector collecting taxes. And all of a sudden he just gets up and follows the Lord. Now, tax collectors were believed to be the most dishonest people of the day. But Jesus says, you can come follow me. Now, I know some people walk in here today, and you think, man, if you knew what all I carry, if you knew what happened in my past, you'd never think that I should be here. Let me tell you, that's the type of people that Jesus called. He didn't call extraordinary. He called ordinary people to follow him. And then it says in Thomas, Thomas is the guy who had a hard time believing good news. He was a pessimist. He was a doubter. One uh, pastor said he was not a cheery guy, but there's a place for him. Anybody here ever doubt? Anybody here ever get a little negative? Well, we write that kind of guy off sometimes, but not Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together says, The exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community, may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. When we sideline people because we think they're not going to be able to bring anything to the table, we may be sidelining Jesus. In God's community, everybody's welcome. 
and nobody's perfect. And then it names three other guys. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. James, the son of Alphaeus, was also known as James the Less. Now, I don't know if that was because he was short, or maybe he was a younger brother, but that's one of the people that Jesus called, and he was also the other James. This other guy, Thaddeus, he also had a name that other people referred to him as, and the name was Judas. Can you imagine being a follower of Jesus, and then they find out your name is Judas? And you're like, no, 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 not that Judas. I'm, I'm Thaddeus, you know. It's kind of what he says, but in Scripture it clarifies him. Judas, not Iscariot. Simon the Zealot is the other Simon. So we have Simon Peter. It might feel the same way. Oh, I'm Simon. I'm a follower of Jesus. Oh, no, 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 not Peter. I'm Simon the Zealot, which means he was a member of this political party that probably wanted to overturn or did want to overturn Rome, had no problem with uh, bringing harm to tax collectors. And so you think Jesus has Matthew and he has Simon the Zealot. And you wonder, did Jesus ever say to Simon the Zealot, I want you to bunk with Matthew tonight. You got a lot to learn, you know, because that's the type of thing that Jesus does. He puts us around people that make us a little uncomfortable to grow us up in faith. And finally, we have. Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. The betrayer. You have to wonder, how did he make it on the team? What was Jesus thinking? Was Jesus thinking? Jesus had a plan. But this man was a thief. He was a liar. You know he did not make the team great by joining him. This is the one. Judas Iscariot is the one who whenever Mary came to anoint Jesus' feet with that expensive perfume... And it's a beautiful scene. Judas says, we could have used that money for something else rather than this. I like, this is what one commentator says. He says, Judas was unable and unwilling to see that the native language of love is lavishness. He could never imagine that love would mean that Jesus could forgive, that Jesus could show grace. Judas doesn't demonstrate that Jesus didn't have power to change his life. Judas demonstrates the power of an unrepentant heart and what it does to a life. Well, these men were ordinary. No one assumed that they could change the world. Peter didn't make them great. Philip and Andrew didn't make them great. Thaddeus didn't make them great. We know Judas Iscariot did not. What the scriptures demonstrate is that Jesus makes the disciples great. And it wasn't just because of association or education. It was that Jesus came to bring salvation. His death on the cross covered a multitude of sins. And his resurrection demonstrates that you can follow Jesus into eternity. They were a mess on their own. But Jesus uses ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. You know, we like to pile on Judas Iscariot. Because, I mean, he was such a disappointment. I can't believe he did this. And he deserves it, right? But Judas was not the only flawed disciple. All of the disciples, every one of them, were mess-ups. They spoke out of turn. They became competitive with one another. They became competitive about spiritual matters. There's a scene where John is, and Peter are racing to see who can get to the tomb first. And you think, this is crazy. They were self-centered. They were full of fear. They were weak. They doubted. They were not overly intelligent. They were described as uneducated and untrained. But Jesus took these flawed individuals and from vastly different backgrounds and united them 
as his children, as his followers, as the early fathers of the church as we know it today. Well, you know, as a church today, we all have flaws. I hate to admit it, but we do. And we have a whole lot of differences, too. I know we have some Carolina fans, and we have about as many Clemson fans in the room today. We have those who are from South Carolina, and we have those who were born above the Mason-Dixon line, all in one building. I know you'll be surprised to know we have Republicans and Democrats in the church today. That's who we are. We have Americans, and did you know on any given Sunday we have about 12 different nationalities represented in our international department that worship and study the Word of God with us. Life together is about seeing everyone in the family of God through Jesus. We may disagree on many different things, but He unites us as His children for a purpose. No matter how ordinary you feel, you have something to offer in the body of Christ. So you need to ask yourself, how can I use what I've got? My gift, my talent, my experiences. How can I use it for God's purpose in the church? Jesus appoints 12 by his own will for specific purposes from ordinary backgrounds. And here's the bottom line. God is not looking for professionals. He does just fine with amateurs. He's not looking for perfection. He much prefers authenticity. He is simply looking for willing servants, open hands, to be a part of his team. Jesus called the first 12 disciples, and I believe God is still calling today. Is he calling you? Our Father in God, we thank you so much that as we study the word of God, we see our own lives in front of us. It reflects back to us who we are and how desperately we need you, Jesus. We think that we can bring everything you need, but God, we are on our own absolutely helpless. So God, we pray for each person here that today, as you call, we would respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're coming to a time of invitation. If God's speaking to your heart, I hope you'd respond. Some of you, it may be calling to deeper commitment in the church. Some, it may be joining the church or following believers' baptism. Some, it may be coming today to join God's family as you believe and receive on Jesus. So I'm gonna invite you to stand as our choir sings. If God's calling you today, you respond.